the reality is that if if you want the highest average speed over a certain course, then you actually need to go harder when the course is harder. everyone. Welcome to the latest episode of the Matchbox Podcast powered by Ignition Coach Co. I'm your host, Adam Sabin, and this week we've got listener questions on recovering from sickness and overtraining, the best pacing strategy for covering rolling terrain, and whether or not those wheel upgrades are worth it. Today's show is also brought to you by Flow Formulas. I've been doing a ton of traveling this summer, and Flow's single-serving drink mix tubes have been a staple of my on-the-go kit. They're easy to pack, conveniently fitting inside an empty water bottle, Simple to use, just pop the top and pour it straight into your bottle. And best of all, the tubes are reusable, so you can refill them for next time. Head over to flowformulas.com today to check it out and use the discount code IgnitionPodcast10 for 10% off your first order. As always, if you like what you hear, please share this with your friends and leave us a five-star review. If you have any questions for the show, drop us an email at matchboxpod at gmail.com with email title of the Matchbox Podcast, or head over to Ignition Coach Co. and fill out the Matchbox Podcast listener question form. All right, let's get into it. Okay, so this first question is coming from Isa. And Isa, I apologize, you sent this question in, uh, a couple weeks ago, and it looks like it was only a couple days before your A race. So unfortunately, we missed that, but we still have some relevant content to share. So Isa is talking about recovery and over recovering from overtraining slash sickness. Uh, so Isa was training for a three hour race and says, I, I think I might have been overtrained or sick on the week of the 22nd, and they share like a breakdown of the last eight weeks of their training block. Uh, it says our, our whole household got the flu. I didn't have any symptoms other than mild sore throat when I woke up in the morning. Uh, here's what mm. my training looked like. So then they break down their training. Uh, it includes a couple normal weeks, then a block week. And the block week comes the week before we're talking about here, this week of the 22nd, where they felt kind of sick. Um, so their FTP is 270, and the last week of their or last day of their block week, they did a three-hour race simulation where they averaged 258 watts. So, you know, not 95% of FTP. Uh, Issa says, the, the effort felt surprisingly measured and comfortable, and I was expecting that kind of, I wasn't expecting that kind of power to be easily attained. However, since the block week, my power has been lacking and my heart rate has been elevated. Zone mm-hmm. 2 rides that were once easy are difficult, and I can't hold threshold power for more than 10 minutes. In one of Dylan's videos, he mentioned that he had a hard, he had a block periodization that failed him, but he doesn't mention how he got out of the hole that he dug himself into. Do you have any tips? Also, do you think I should be, do you still think I should be doing this three hour race, uh, Isa? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I have had block periodization go extremely well, where it's like it, it put me in the best shape that I had ever been in previously to that point. And then I've had it do the exact opposite where, uh, I just felt overtrained and, and, uh, much worse off than had I not done the block week, or at least before I did the block week, I felt a lot better. And I think that the recovery afterwards is really critical. Uh, and if you get that wrong, you could screw the entire thing up. And I'm, I'm honestly not that surprised that you saw amazing numbers on the last day of a block week. I've seen amazing numbers on the last day of a block week. I've seen amazing numbers on the last day of a stage race. It's something that we've talked about a lot on this podcast is the stage race effect. Um, And 
people putting out amazing record breaking numbers, you know, five days into a stage race or five days into a block week, not surprising to me. Uh, also not surprising to me that, you know, you, you felt really bad after the block week. Um, that's typical. Uh, the hope is that you come out of that way stronger than you were before. Um, and it sounds like maybe that wasn't the case here. Maybe you just did a little bit too much too soon. And when that's the case, I mean, really the only remedy is to take some, I I think the best thing to do, honestly, is if, if you're actually overtrained is to just straight up take time off. Cause that's the quickest way you're going to remedy it. You could, you could train easy for a little while, like lower volume, lower intensity, um, but if you want to get better and get back to where you were as quick as possible, if you're overtrained, the quickest way to do that is to take some time off, take like maybe three or four days completely off the bike. Yeah, I would agree with that. Drew, have you done many block weeks? In Only in once. Um, and I don't know exactly like if it worked or didn't work. I did it like a month before cross Nats last year. And didn't have a great race at Cross Nats, but like Cross Nats was like a Russian roulette, basically, um, like the the conditions and all that. So I don't really know if the fitness actually got to be shown at that race. Mm. And then I took some time off, and then like a month into my next block of training, uh, which would have been like three months after I had done the block week, uh, I tied my like PR twenty minute. So it's like, did that PR 20 minute was like the block week a part of that? I don't know, like a three month post block period. Is that how long it takes to see the benefits of it? I don't know. But um, I mean, that's definitely one thing I was thinking about is like how long of a period. Like if your is your if your A race is in one month from now, two months from now, three months from now, like how soon before that A race should you try to do a block period? But in my head, after having done the block period, once I don't think I would ever do it again, unless I'm really desperate. Uh, I think like, unless some other reason like per- prohibits you from doing a normal training block, I would just stick to the tried and true normal training block of like three weeks on one week off. And then, I mean, like the end of your three week training block should be pretty high. Like I was looking at the numbers he sent us and his week three of his training block before he did that big block week was only like 200 or 300 TSS off of his block week. So like, you know, um, and it was, it was, it was a, even over more a thousand volume. TSS. So yeah. Big training. He, he did a 1022, which was like the last week of his normal training block. And then two weeks later he did a 1350 same volume, 20 and 21 hours. Uh, it was just that he did a lot more intensity the week of the block week. But, um, I mean, I would think just, just keep doing the three week, at least that's what I lean towards because it seems a lot less risky. And then you don't have to worry about the whole recovery, like, oh, am I recovering? Because then you're kind of doing it like you're progressing at such a normal rate that it should be you should be able to recover normally. And you don't have to, like, overthink the recovery. Like, seems like block, block like the way Dylan talks about it is like sometimes you get it and sometimes you don't. Um, mm-hmm. And I feel like that's not the case with a typical three week training block. It's like your body knows how to handle a, a normal three week training block. Cause that's the way we train almost all the time. Um, so unless yeah. you're really desperate, that's what I, I don't know. That's my advice. 
And that's yeah, my advice so, to myself too. Like I don't, mm-hmm. I don't think I'm going to try another block period personally. Yeah. So, so like in Issa's case here, uh, Issa provides four week training history prior to the block week. And again, like Drew was mentioning, uh, that base three week three. So the last week of, of their base training week, they put in a big week, 21 hours, over a thousand TSS. What we don't know is what was your training coming into this base period? Cause that's a lot of training. And it's hard to know, like, it, are you training more than you ever have before? So like maybe you were already in a hole kind of going into that mm-hmm. block week and then that block week pushed you over the edge or is like, you know, a thousand TSS training week, like pretty standard for you. Um, cause, cause that's important to, to understand, like, and that's where, you know, Dylan's talking about the, the timing of your block week. It has to be far enough out from your race so that you get recovered fully and the adaptation set in. Um, but you also have to time it appropriately with, where you're at coming into the block week. Cause if you're on that edge of like pushing over into overtraining, um, you know, that block week's going to definitely put you in the, in a pretty deep hole. Yeah. I, I think that it's, it's probably a good idea to go into the block week relatively fresh. Uh, and also I don't necessarily, it depends on what you're training for, but I don't necessarily think that the block week has to be high volume. Uh, in fact, it could be lower volume than a typical training week for you. Just obviously super high in intensity. Mm-hmm. That's one way to do it. I mean, I think some people also do high volume block weeks for specific types of races, and that's probably fine. But especially if it's your first time ever doing one, I would go in fresh. I would not necessarily make it a high volume week, and I would really take the recovery afterwards seriously. Um And, you know, as, as if, and if that is successful for you, uh, maybe you can, you can try to ramp it up in the future, maybe make that block week higher volume or go in a little bit more fatigue than you did previously. But, um, I think if I'm, you know, looking at this particular situation, I think probably two mistakes was that, uh, this person may have gone in with a little bit too much fatigue and also, um, that block week was pretty high volume. Right. The other thing that I was going to mention is, and I love to do this is like, and maybe this is like you're at the training camp or the destination where you're going to go somewhere for a week and you just want to get in high volume. I love doing that. And I'll do, I'll try to do that once, like once every month or two where I'll go down to like, uh, like Townsend, Tennessee around the Smoky mountains and just do a big four or five day block of high volume but i won't maybe one of those days has intervals but i'm really just going down there to get a really big uh volume in um so that's not a block week but it's just like i would kind of try to fit that into my three-week block um like ideally that would be the third week of a three-week block and i could just kind of like the sky's the limit right as much as i want high volume uh and i think that has a lot of benefits too of like fitness down the road you know like i i do that a lot, right. You know, it's kind of like the whole idea of a base season, but like maybe even like having certain weeks where you notch it up like this week when we were or this year in March, when we had the ignition training camp down in Townsend that week, I did like 25 hours of training, but a lot of it was just endurance riding. Uh, and that's like more than a typical, that's probably like one of the highest weeks I've had ever of volume you know? Um, so I like, I was trying to go for volume instead of intensity. And I think you can, okay, we can handle that a little bit better than trying to do a full block week with a bunch of volume and intensity. Right. Yeah, I agree with that. So, you know, one, one thing that's kind of muddying the waters here for Issa is 
they they started to feel kind of crummy at the same time their household came down with the flu. So it's kind of hard to decipher whether Issa was suffering from some flu-like symptoms or a bit of overtraining symptoms. But let's, you know, like let's let's kind of assume it was the latter. You know, we'll take the the flu and the sickness out of the equation. How do you guys start to recognize either when you yourself or one of your athletes is kind of encroaching into that overtraining syndrome? Yeah, I mean, I I think it would be important to you know, uh, understand whether this person had flu symptoms or not. Um, if they, you know, if, even if they didn't have flu symptoms, their immune system could have been fighting it. Uh, but if they didn't, you know, if they didn't actually have flu symptoms, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm leaning a little bit more on the overtraining side. It is pretty unfortunate timing. If you think about it, <laughs> end of block week, and then your whole household has, has the flu. Um, but as far as the overtraining symptoms go, the things that I would look for is, uh, probably one of the biggest ones is a decrease in motivation, especially for an athlete that's usually super motivated. If, if you have an athlete that's usually super motivated and then all of a sudden you have a lack of motivation that, that should set off alarm bells that something's going wrong with your body. And sometimes people don't recognize that. Um, that's kind of, that's kind of your brain telling you, stop doing this to me. I I don't want to do this anymore. Um, uh, motivation, sleep. Uh, sometimes some people sleep way more when they're overtrained. Some people have a really hard time sleeping when they're overtrained. Um, uh, mood swings. Uh, A lot of the, a lot of the symptoms of overtraining are similar to the symptoms of depression. If you're familiar with those. Um, so, you know, just like, uh, constant fatigue, um, you know, uh, and it, and it may just, it may not even be struggling with motivation on the bike. It could be struggling with motivation just in other aspects of your life too. So those are things to keep an eye out for. That's some good advice. Yeah. And, and you mentioned, uh, early on in this, that the best thing you can do is to just shut it down instead of like trying to, you know, yeah beat your head against the wall or fight through it, or even like just doing recovery rides. Like sometimes even doing recovery rides are going to be too much. Well, I just, I just think that when, if you're, if you're actually to the point where you're overtrained and, and a lot of people get to this point because, you know, they want to, they want to maximize the time they have and maybe they just didn't give themselves enough recovery. That is super common. The, the quickest way you're going to get back to normal is to, is to, give yourself complete rest. If you keep giving yourself partial rest, it's only going to prolong you getting back to feeling normal. So yeah, right. that's why, I mean, you may, you may lose some fitness in the short term, but in the, in the long term, you're going to be a lot better off. Right. Yeah. And, and it's kind of similar for, for overcoming sickness too. Yeah. You know, yeah. a lot of people will try to just train through their sickness and then that extends their, their sick period from instead of being, three or four days, it turns into a week and a half. You know, now you're mm-hmm. losing a week and a half of quality fitness or uh, quality training. Um, yeah. yeah. Drew, are you going to say something? Yeah. I think, um, just looking at his like progression from TSS from week to week, it definitely looks like he was training a lot, you know, regardless of how fit he is, like the hours that he's putting in and the TSS that he's putting in. And even if you don't feel overtrained, like what Dylan was saying, like maybe you, maybe you don't feel sore and you are motivated and all of that. I think one thing that you can't 
really like feel is when your immune system is weak. And like, I think anytime that you are training a lot like that, like close to 20 hours a week or 15 plus hours a week, uh, your immune system is just going to be weak. Um, and you can't really like, at least I don't think we can feel when our immune system is weak. It's just like one of those things where it is weak and then you end up getting sick a little more often than not. Uh, and I say all that cause like from personal experience this week was like, or this year, 2023 was like the first time I had really consistently started training with like 20 hour weeks, uh, or more, uh, was like the normal started to become like a normal thing. And this year was also like the most I've ever been sick. Um, and so I think those two things are definitely like correlated, you know, when, when training is high, you're gonna get sick more often, unfortunately, just cause, and I have a kid. So like, yeah, I was about to say that increased. Yeah. <laughs> that's the other thing is like, now my kid is old enough to where she's playing with other kids. And I think the, all of those things like add up to, you're probably going to get sick a little more often than before. Yeah. The kid is definitely a huge component. <laughs> To that yeah equation. i was i was i i agree with you but i think the kid is a huge confounding factor there yeah yeah worth it <laughs> okay uh, i think we I think we answered isa's question okay this next one comes from carlos and carlos says hello at this point i've heard all of your episodes and i'm really enjoying them good job my question is what is the best strategy to go as fast as possible over rolling terrain or changing wind conditions for instance, if you were time trialing, at what percentage of FTP will you ride in the flats versus the one to three minute climbs versus some sections that are flat against the wind? Also, what percentage of your FTP will you ride the descents and the tailwind? How much do I need to push before the climb to get as much momentum as possible without losing my pace, my power uh, at, at pace? And then he says, let's assume one to two hours duration. One to two hours duration. Hmm. Okay, so yeah, this is. Uh, have we answered a question similar to this on this podcast before? Or no, I don't. I don't know if we have actually. Like you know, covering rolling terrain. Yeah, I don't, I don't think so. So I, relevant I, for gravel racing though. Yeah, I definitely talk about this in my video that I have about pacing, but it's definitely worth going over because pacing is you know huge and people get pacing wrong all the time. But so I'm assuming that this that he's doing this solo and he's not riding with a group because he didn't mention anything about group dynamics right yeah let's it they, they mentioned time trialing you know so yeah, yeah. i think that's a good assumption so it, you know I, I think a lot of time trialists fall into this trap of oh i just need to hold a consistent wattage for the whole thing uh the wattage needs to be exactly the same for the whole time and if it was a flat time trial i would agree with that um but the reality is that if if you want the highest average speed over a certain course, then you actually need to go harder when the course is harder. And what I mean by that is what makes the course harder? You know, uh, uphills make the course harder. Headwinds make the course harder. Uh, I don't know. The terrain you're on could make the course harder. But so you you actually need to you you need to go harder in the uphill and headwind sections and you, and that means you need to go easier to make up for that in the tailwind and downhill sections and I guess flat sections too. So uh exactly how much I guess it kind of depends on the course but if we're talking about a rolling course um 
I mean, I, I, so just as an example, I had sort of a similar idea going into unbound last year, not unbound this year, unbound last year, where I was trying to pace myself appropriately for, for unbound. And, um, I believe I chose to, I was going to try to average like 270 Watts or something, but that doesn't mean I was holding 270 the whole time I was doing like 300 on the climbs and then, uh, maybe 250, 240 on the downhills. And if it was a flat, I'd probably be at 270. Um, so I, I would suggest giving yourself like a 50 to 60 watt range. Um, if you have a good idea of what you can average for that duration. So hopefully you already know what you can average for two hours. Um, and then give yourself a 50 watt range or a 60 watt range where you go above that on climbs and you go below that on descents. And you're probably just holding that number steady on the flats. Same can apply for headwinds and tailwinds, you know, go above that on the headwinds, go below that on the tailwinds. If it's neutral wind, then just keep at that number. (laughs) Yeah. I'd love, I'd love to see the power. Maybe you can like on Strava or whatever, see some of the power from um, the time trial that happened yesterday at the tour because they mm-hmm. kind of had to do the same thing where like they had to pace themselves the first 10 miles and then the last or whatever, 14, I don't know, whatever. And then, the, and then they had that climb at the end of it. Um, mm-hmm. I can almost guarantee you like the riders that were at the top of the leaderboard at the end of the day, paced it to where their power was higher on that last climb than in the flats. One rider who did not do that was Stefan Kuhn, who set the like fastest time through the first and second checkpoint. And then, I wonder if he held steady power, but it looked like on the screen that he totally blew up on the climb just through pacing out the door. Mm -hmm. Uh, But like when you watched, wow, it was like you could tell he was just clicking the boxes on through the first and the second checkpoints. And then when he got to the climb, it was like, okay, that's when like the real power got dropped. Um, And those were the riders that were at the, at the end of the day had the fastest time. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that would be interesting to see. Um, one thing I wanted to say, you know, kind of in response to Dylan is a mistake that I see a lot of riders make. <clears throat> they go super, super hard in the hard part and then mm-hmm. super, super easy in the easy parts. And mm-hmm. that's different than what, what Dylan, you know, you're, is talking about here. So like, mm-hmm. let's say you've got the rolling course. We'll take the wind out of the equation or the terrain. We're just going to look at the rollers. You don't want to go and do 450 watts up yeah, climb agreed. and then coast down the backside. Cause that's, that's a huge mistake that I see all the time, especially in gravel. People will jam it up the climbs. Then they just like barely crest over. They just start coasting. They coast all the way to the bottom of the, the next roller. And then they start pedaling again. And that does a few things. One, it really breaks up your rhythm. You know, if you're, if you're mm-hmm. kind of going hard and then easy, you're never really settling into a pace that feels comfortable or sustainable. Um, also, you're going to be constantly going above your threshold, so you're burning those matches one roller after the next. And another one that a lot of people don't think about is when you're coasting off that backside, by the time you hit the bottom, you're never going to be in the right gear because you're always going to be in the easy gear from the top of the last climb. So mm-hmm. I see all the time where people will be coasting, and then they go to pedal at the bottom of that next climb to keep that momentum going. Mm-hmm. And they're like in the easiest gear, and they're just spinning, 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 <laughs> trying to shift. And then that's when like throw their chain off their cassette or, you know, drop their train or break their chain or something like that. Like you make one of those silly mistakes because you're not in the right gear. Whereas if you're constantly pedaling, like you're always going to be in the right gear. And that's huge when you're trying to keep that momentum and carry your speed up that next climb is being in the right, 
right gear by the time the next climb starts. Um, but yeah, I just want to throw that out there because it's, I don't want people to misinterpret what you were saying as like go really hard in the hard section and then really easy. Like it's, it's harder and then it's less hard. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's a good point to make. I mean, even, even in the pro level, uh, I think one of the most annoying things to me is when I'm riding with a group and someone in the group or multiple people in the group feel the need to blast it up a climb at 500 watts. And then we get to a flat section and we're hardly moving. Yeah. <laughs> Um, it's annoying because it's, it, uh, it hurts to go at 500 Watts up a climb. Sure. But I also know that that is not the fastest way for us to move forward. So, right. Yeah. But the goal of a race isn't to be the fastest. It's to be the first. Yeah, I no, I get that. But you know, at the, (laughs) at the lifetime, it's annoying. At the lifetime Grand Prix level, I'm rarely in the in the lead group, uh, and so most of the time we're just trying to ha- have a high average speed in the chase group or whatever. And people still do that. No, I, yeah. I get if you're in the front group and you're just trying to disrupt people, uh, but yeah. that's that's rare. That's rarely the case. I find myself in. Uh, this is somewhat relevant to this question, but I found myself thinking about it, so I'll say it. Um, one of the things that I'll do in a crit. Um, and I tried to make this point in my last video I did on the quick star crit, the one that I won back in May before I broke my wrist. Um, I look for part, especially in a crit where you're going to be doing the loop over and over and over again. Uh, you can find the parts of the course where you can tell the, the group is moving slower and you can kind of think to yourself, okay, uh, like at the quick star crit, there was like a, a steep downhill, but then it kind of flattened out and like, everybody coasted right there because there was a sharp turn at the end of it, but it was a really long section and you could have totally pedaled the whole way. Uh, but everybody, there's like a big climb. So everybody's recovering on the downhill and they're like thinking, Oh, well, we're going to have to slow down for this turn coming up anyways. And you know, like you notice that throughout the race, like, Oh, like the group seems to be coasting right here and I could very easily be pedaling right here. So when I was off the front for the last three laps, I made like I made it a mental point of like I am going to pedal this section even if I have to like grab some break right before the turn because I know I'm going to be gaining time on the group because they won't be pedaling or most likely they're not going to want to pedal right there because they're going to be recovering. So it's easy to find those parts of the course where um where the group is going easier and you can think to yourself if I were in a break or solo or whatever I could use that to my my advantage based on the the trends that you're seeing the group do throughout the race. And that takes some like racer intuition, I guess. But um, yeah, I found myself thinking that throughout the race. Yeah, it makes sense. And it was helpful. Mm -hmm. All right. Time for one more. Let's do it. Okay. Okay. So this one comes from Eric and he says, hello, my son and myself love your podcast. I'm considering upgrading to 50 millimeter arrow wheels for my road bike from the stock aluminum rims. I live in Michigan with mostly smaller flat, flat and hilly, mostly smaller hilly and flat roads. Would this be a worthwhile upgrade? What is the difference between aluminum stock rims versus these upgraded arrow rims? How are the arrow rims in crosswinds? Would you see speed increases with the arrow wheels? How is the ride quality with the arrow wheels? And how are arrow wheels when climbing? Thanks, Eric. Mm. <laughs> Dang. 
I don't All know right. any of the answer. I don't know the answer to any of those questions, what? dude. You're, you're All I know o- is that arrow wheels are better. You're the only ro- you're the only roadie here. Yeah, I don't know. I don't so, know. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I mean it's, it's obvious. It's an obvious advantage in road racing because the speed is yeah. so high. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I think he's talking about road. I don't think he's talking about gravel. Yeah, it's, it's, it's for the road bike. I mean, the only thing I have to say is. I personally like hate training on like zips or something like that because I know how expensive they are. And so when I'm like out doing a hundred mile just endurance ride on my zip 303s, I'm like, oh, like I just, I don't know. There's something about that that irks me. Like I would much rather go doing a, go do a big training ride on some aluminum comp wheels uh, and save those aero wheels for racing. But that's just me. I was, I was the same way back in college. Not, not anymore. Yeah. Right. Right. (laughs) So, so the, uh, um, yeah, I mean the different, the, the, the difficult part of this question is that it totally depends what, you know, he says generally he's going from aluminum stock wheels to aero carbon wheels, but totally depends on what rim you're starting with and what rim you're, you're ending with. Uh, Mm -hmm you know, different, different manufacturers wheels are more or less aerodynamic. And even in the aluminum wheels, it's not, it's not all, they're not all the same. So it's very hard to give you like, Oh yeah, you're going to gain two miles per hour or (laughs) or something like, but it's going to be a notable advantage. And I would argue that, you know, if you already have a power meter, which I think should be your first uh, upgrade to your bike, if you already have a power meter um, and you're looking for an upgrade to your bike that's going to make the most difference, I would probably say going from stock aluminum wheels to aero carbon wheels is probably, you know, probably the best thing you can do. It's probably going to make the biggest difference. Yeah. So, and Eric mentioned, you know, he has a couple of different questions within here. You know, he's asking about, uh, like, how do the aero wheels respond in crosswinds? How would... Yeah. Your speed increase, does the ride quality in- improve? How are they when, with climbing? I mean, if you're going from stock aluminum rims that came like stock on your road bike, I mean, all of those are going to be improved. They're probably, yeah. their air wheels will probably end up being lighter. So they probably will climb a little better. Um, they're going to be better in the crosswinds because they're, they're engineered to perform in crosswinds, even though they're 50 mil deep. Like, the, yeah, the, the way they engineer the, the way the wheels are engineered now. I mean, they're they're going to be they're going to handle fine at crosswinds. I'll I'll put yeah. it that way. Yeah, depends on um, how bad the crosswind is. Fifty mil deep is yeah. pretty deep. Sometimes it it depends on the manufacturer. Sometimes uh, really deep carbon wheels can actually be quite heavy. So I don't want to necessarily say that the wheels are going to be lighter because I again I don't know what you're starting with and I I don't know what you're right. ending with. They could be lighter. They could not be lighter. I'm not sure. But what I will say is that I, I believe that um, I believe that Zip actually I had uh, they looked at uh, they were looking at the climbing performance of I think their you know their four hundred four versus their two hundred two or something um, like one of their more aerodynamic wheels versus one of their supposed climbing wheels and at at uh, at a certain gradient I you know I don't have this article in front of me so I can't give you specific numbers but even though the more aero wheels were heavier than the climbing wheels, 
it was surprising how steep it had to get for the climbing wheels to get become faster. Like even even at slower climbing speeds, the more aerodynamic aero wheel actually improved speed more than the weight savings from the lightweight wheel. Um, So an example of this was, again, the the TT yesterday, Pogaccia switched to his road bike. Van Gigo stayed on his TT bike and like freaking demolished the climb on his heavier but more aero TT bike. And the commentators even said something along the lines of he might be the only one going fast enough for the aero advantages of his TT bike on the climb. <laughs> um, but he ended up yeah. putting a minute and a half into Pogacha on that climb with a different bike. So, yeah. I mean, that should be like case in point of like, uh, yeah, like there's some, there's aero advantages, even when you're climbing at a certain, to a certain, up to a certain point. Right. <clears throat> right. Yeah. Yeah. And as far as like the crosswinds go, like if, you know, if that's a concern, like how the bike will handle in crosswinds, I do kind of like some of the manufacturers now offer like a, like a 40 mil front and a 50 mil rear. Mm-hmm. Um, like I know Envy has their SCS like four fives. Um, I think zip has a wheel set now where it's like, you know, it's like five or seven mil, thin or you know shallower in the front um i'm sure there's a ton of other offer offerings out there um it it looks a little like funky at first because it's not symmetric but once you kind of get used to it um the look of it i think that kind of goes away and i know dylan doesn't care how they look but um (laughs) (laughs) you know so so it's interesting i think for for crosswinds i think the the shallower front wheel and the the deeper rear wheel makes a lot of sense I actually mm-hmm. saw an interesting video from uh, Peak Torque, the YouTube channel, and he argues that manufacturers should actually do the opposite. The front wheel should be deeper and the rear wheel should be shallower. And For aerodynamics? Right, because the aerodynamics of the front wheel matters more than the aerodynamics of the rear wheel. And his argument was that if you do deeper in the front and shallower in the rear, you get a bigger aerodynamic benefit from the front wheel and then you get a little bit of weight savings for your rear wheel. Sure. Now, I mean, you know, I don't know. I don't I don't know of any manufacturer that sells a pair of wheels where the where the front one is deeper and the rear one is shallower. No, I've never you, seen that. <laughs> you probably just have to buy the two wheels separately. Oh, I I I I do think Lachlan did that at Unbound. His, well, he, he had did, like an arrow front wheel, front wheel. Well, he he also did like like his tire, like his front tire was a mountain bike tire and then his rear tire was, I don't know, a 38 or something for mud clearance. Yeah. yeah. So his, his wheels were all sorts of mismatched, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, going, going back to it though, you know, to Eric's question, like, is it a worthwhile upgrade? I agree with Dylan. If you already have a power meter then, and you have the money. Yeah. It's, I think like I'd, pr- I'd rather have like an aluminum frame bike with carbon wheels like nice carbon wheels than a nice carbon frame with like stock aluminum wheels. The ride yeah. quality is going to be way better. Um, but definitely yeah, get the power meter sure. first if you don't have that already. When I was a junior and like the, uh, the, like when I was on red zone as a junior and there were, other, there were other kids, parents who had like zips and occasionally uh, they would let me use their zips. And I was like, you know, you get so excited. And the biggest <laughs> thing I remember feeling when I went from like, yeah, my heavy crappy wheels to my, to the, to their like really nice zips was like the acceleration out of turns. I just mm-hmm. felt like you could feel that, 
that snap out of turns, especially in like a crit or a road race or something, even in a cross race where you're accelerating out of turns a lot. I remember that being like the one thing that you could noticeably feel a big difference with those nicer, lighter rims or whatever. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. And I would say that for cyclocross or mountain biking, like that makes a huge difference. Like the, the lighter the wheel, the snappier it's going to be because there there's constant accelerations for something like gravel or just general road riding. Like you're not accelerating as often. So you may, Mm -hmm. may not notice that as much. Um, you know, that's why like climbing wheels, you know, get the rap for being super light, but like Dylan was saying, like once you're at a certain speed or a certain, you know, if you're below a certain gradient, like the, the aerodynamics are going to play a bigger role than the weight. Um, but unless you're accelerating, like accelerations, you notice a big difference with rim rim weight. Yep. Yep. All right. Here's another good, here's another question. All right. Kind of related to that one is, um, (laughs) what are the, what do you all, what about this? Like you train with really heavy wheels. So you just get used to the really heavy wheels and then race day, you put your really light wheels on. You think there's some kind of advantage of like back in the day, I remember like, I've heard of like Sven Nice and those old cross guys dropping like steel tubes into their seat posts just to make their bike like five pounds heavier. Um, like, what do you guys think of like that? Like training with a heavier bike so that when you race with a lighter bike, you feel faster or you are faster. I don't know. Yeah. I've definitely been asked this question before. Um, so I don't know. I haven't seen any research on this. I don't know if there is research on this, but particularly for cyclocross, I don't think that makes sense because you need to be used to in training. You need to be used to riding the bike that you're going to race on. So I would want to train on the the bike that weighs what my race bike is going to weigh so that I'm used to that. And also Watts or Watts. If you're doing 300 Watts on a 15 pound bike versus if you're doing 300 Watts on a 25 pound bike, the end of the day you're doing 300 watts there's not a difference in physiologically hmm. in your in your body uh right. like just speed you're, you're just going to be going slower right yeah so yeah that's true so the way that i see it is is if the only thing that changes is your speed is slower i don't see how that's possibly a good thing because you know it's it's only better to be used to be right be used to riding at race speed or close to race speed. Um, so I don't, I don't see how there, I honestly don't see how there's any advantage to riding a heavier bike in training other than the fact that you're saving your race equipment for race day, which I completely understand. We should totally get a shirt, a matchbox branded shirt that says Watts are Watts, bro. (laughs) Matchbox. Yeah. And, and, I, I, I agree. I, I like to train on what I'm going to be racing on just so I'm like as comfortable as possible, like on the same tires and I know how the wheels feel, you know, like, like I'll see people who go out and train for cyclocross, like they're doing cross practice on like tubeless tires or, you know, just clinchers. And then they only put their tubulars on for race day. And I get it. Like you don't want to flat a tubular in training cause it's a pain in the butt to change it. But like you, you're not going to know the ride characteristic of those tubulars come race day. Mm-hmm. Like if you've been training all the time on your clinchers, so like you've got to be able to mix those in at some point in your training, just so you get used to how those corner. Um, otherwise, like the tubulars really aren't probably adding a whole lot of benefit. They're just making the ride different. Like it might be better, but if you're not used to it, better doesn't necessarily mean faster. Yeah, yeah. Especially I, I, in 
for like for road riding, if you were on a 15 pound bike versus a 25 pound bike, I'd be like, I, I mean, I don't know. You're just going to be going slower. But for cyclocross in particular, it's it's really important to know how your bike handles and shouldering your bike and all of that. And I would just prefer to have my exact race setup and training so I know exactly how it's going to feel when I'm on the starting line. Yeah, for sure. I've heard of guys on race day at a muddy race warming up on files so that when they race on their muds, they're like so used to having to overcompensate because of their <laughs> file treads that they race so much faster on their mud tires. And I'm like, to me, that just seems like a waste of time. Like you're going to be slipping and sliding all over the place in warm up. Like you're not going to actually get to practice the lines that you would take during the race if you were on file because the way you race right. with files in mud versus muds in muds is like your line choice is going to be totally different in those two situations so it's like For sure like Drew, warm up Drew, on how often in a in a cross race do you do you run like one of your fastest laps like on the last lap or the second to last lap like pretty often, right? Like, oh yeah, yeah. Because that, you know the course so well, and you're so oh, comfortable right, right. in the conditions. Like, even though you might not have as much energy as you did in laps one or two, you know the course so well. Like, you're riding so much more efficiently. So, like to me, yeah. it only makes sense to like get more time on that setup. Yeah, yeah, totally agree. I think there. I mean, maybe you could make the argument of tr- doing some training on files, but on race day, I think you should just do your race setup, like the warm up should be you trying to dial in your lines and your race setup. Maybe you could go out on some files for training just to practice some extra handling, like to disadvantage yourself sure. that way. But, um, but even then I don't think the advantage is probably that big. All right. Did we answer your question, Drew? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right, sweet. Well, let's wrap it here. We'll, we'll come back and answer more next week to you guys. See you. See ya. All right, folks, thanks for tuning in for the latest episode of the Matchbox Podcast. Like I said at the beginning, you can send any questions or topic suggestions to matchboxpod at gmail.com with email title, the Matchbox Podcast. Links to each of our social media pages can be found in the show notes. Tune in next week for another endurance training-related discussion and learn more about how you can find that extra match for your next big event. Catch you all soon. Let's go! Let's go!